ವಸುದೇವಾಸುತಂಸಚಾಣೋರಮರ್ದನಂ ದೇವಕೀ ಪರಮಂದಂ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗು I think everybody needs to mute. Yes. I'm getting some background noise here. Good. We were on verse number 32 when I mentioned that that is the famous um, golden rule found in all religions. A very important ethical principle. Maybe the most important ethical principle. And what vedanta does is it gives it a philosophical basis why should we follow the golden rule why should we treat others as we treat ourselves um it may be a great idea but it can be criticized why should i treat others like myself i'll treat myself like myself and those who are related to me i'll give them preference and um, uh, others are of secondary importance why not so vedanta gives you the basis that they are you because you, you automatically give yourself importance but all the others are nothing but you the real you um, the atman it's one reality you see the sameness everywhere the same divinity shining through everywhere yeah. same reality um, it is the same uh, one consciousness or if or let's start from from the outwards and move to the inwards they're all the same human beings everybody's a human being and it's an important thing to recognize everybody is a living being i go further all of it is the same matter um, uh, you know earth sky fire water wind it's everything here in, in universes like that or you go further deeper all of it is is the play of maya in, in india it's a common phrase in villages you will hear sab maya hai it's a fact all of this is the play of maya go further all of this is nothing but god god means here ishwara the god of religion the god of religion the saguna brahman that itself uh, appears in all creation vedanta i will not explain here but those who have studied vedanta sara you know what is the material of this creation what is the reality here it is saguna brahman saguna brahman means god um the term used the phrase used there was abhinna nimitta upadana karana the one undivided cause of this universe what kind of cause the instrumental cause as well as the material cause the one who is the creator preserver destroyer of the universe and one who is the universe but not uh, in a pantheistic sense not that god has become the universe but god appears as the universe so there is also oneness there it's all god but advaita vedanta goes further it goes deeper to the ultimate reality beyond god beyond individual and beyond the cosmic what is god the cosmic reality what are you the individual reality but beyond the individual and the and the cosmic beyond the part and the whole is one undivided reality uh, which is the ultimate reality nirguna brahman existence consciousness place and that's the only thing and therefore from that perspective it is all of this it's one with you you are that reality you see if if you stop at god for example all of this is god even then somebody might say 
that, oh, all right, fine. I really don't believe in God. I'm not interested. Let it be God. So what? I feel I am this person. I will protect the interests of this person. And I'll take the help of your God if God helps me out because I'm just this person. But then you cannot say that if you go to Advaita Vedanta because you are no longer this person. You are the reality which appears as God, universe and individuals. In that, that is the grounding for ethics. And the manifestation of the ethics is this golden rule. I mentioned how you find it in the United Nations building headquarters here also. Anyway, now, Arjuna, the student, the disciple, is also an eminently practical man. Remember, he's a warrior. And so for him, the first test is what works. All this is fine philosophy. Does it do any good? Does it work? Practical benefit. So um, it's very American that way. You know, what's the most uh, American of all philosophies? It's pragmatism, uh, which was associated with William James. Uh, but even before that, what was the name of the great philosopher um, who started pragmatism? I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now. Brilliant man. Um, he was at Harvard too. Long ago, even before William James, he's regarded as the father of American pragmatism. But, but to oversimplify and cheapen the philosophy at the risk of oversimplifying, what is this philosophy of pragmatism? It's often sort of ridicule, but uh, there's a point there. It is called the cash value philosophy. What good is it ultimately? Uh, so, and it's, it's a very good test. It's a very American test, but it's a very good test. It could be fine metaphysics. It could be um, subtle logic. John Dewey. No, not John Dewey. John Dewey is the, um, the father of um, American education, uh, the philosophy of education, even before John Dewey, before William James. I'm just missing the name. It'll come out. The source of American uh, pragmatism. John Dewey applied pragmatism. He wrote a number of good books in pragmatism. Charles Pierce, yes, Charles Sanders Pierce, thank you. He was an extraordinary man. He went to Harvard and, uh, um, I mean, philosophers today are rediscovering Charles Sanders Pierce. Uh, his ideas on, uh, I think, even mathematics are something now people are even now beginning to rediscover again. Anyway, um, pragmatism, he gave America its unique philosophy. Pragmatism. If you say one school of philosophy which you associate with America, it's pragmatism. Uh, it's a technical name, by the way. Pragmatism just doesn't mean being pragmatic. It has a relation to that, but it, it's a whole body of thought. Um, so what is what good is it? And Arjuna comes back and he says to Krishna, I've heard you. All of this is wonderful. It's no good. It's useless. Uh, he's going to say that now. Arjunavaja yoyam yoga stvaya prokta samyena madhusudana etasyaham napashyami chanchalatvat stitim sthiram. Arjuna said, This yoga that you have described as equanimity, O slayer of Madhu, I do not see, as, see any permanence owing to restlessness of the mind. It means stability. Basically, what he's saying is that this yoga, which you described as seeing the same Brahman everywhere, ultimately, that's the goal of this yoga. Arjuna has understood perfectly. 
seeing same Brahman everywhere, it doesn't work. It won't work. And the cause of that is the restlessness of the mind. The mind is not going to be calmed by these methods of meditation. And it will not realize. So what if the mind is not calm? Then the ultimate truth which you talked about, maybe it is true that there is one Brahman everywhere, but it won't work. It will not be realized. Uh, it will not become a practical reality for me. Why? Because of the restlessness of the mind. Well, I taught you meditation to calm the restlessness of the mind. That meditation doesn't work. And he will say why it doesn't work. But one thing I want to point out here is, Arjuna has understood uh, Krishna's, uh, the purport, the goal which Krishna has set out. Samyena Madhusudana. Yoga stvaya prokta samyena Madhusudana. I just want to make a remark here. What yoga has Krishna taught, not only in sixth chapter, but in entire Bhagavad Gita. Remember, now I'm speaking entirely from the perspective of Advaita Vedanta. He has not really taught the yoga which consists of devotion to him as God. He has not really taught the yoga which consists of sitting. Is it like sitting, closing your eyes, shutting out the world, breathing in this particular way? That yoga, not thinking of anything at all. That yoga, no, not even that. Samyena that yoga which consists in seeing the same divine reality everywhere. He summed up the goal, the purpose of all these practices in the earlier verses, very beautiful verses which we have done. Um, it says, Sarvabhutas tamatmanam sarvabhutani chatmani ikshate yoga yuktatma sarvatra samadarshanam. This is what, this is the yoga which uh, Krishna has taught. To see the self in all beings. To see the entire universe in yourself. The one who is established in yoga sees the same divinity everywhere in ex every experience. Uh, in the physical, so-called physical universe. In the so-called mental universe. And beyond that, in, in the absolute reality, Brahman. In the waking, in the dream, in the deep sleep, in life and in death, in happiness and in sorrow, in success and failure, see the same divinity shining through. That is the one who is centered in yoga. Then what about these other practices? This, um, you know, the teachings of whether it's bhakti or um, meditation, yoga. I'll be a little philosophical here. In Indian philosophy, among the schools of Indian philosophy, these all other teachings, they constitute what is called Purva Paksha for Advaita Vedanta. Let me be frank here. If you go to the original texts of Advaita Vedanta, Shankara and post-Shankara Advaitins. They spend a lot of energy and a lot of subtle argumentation in cutting down these teachings. Let me be frank here. These are Purvapaksha. We do not accept these Siddhanta. Siddhanta means these conclusions. We accept the techniques. We have a place for each of them, but not the conclusions. What do I mean by that? What are these schools which are cut down? The school of, uh, of Nyaya. Uh, which ultimately culminates in the modern dualistic systems. Uh, what does Nyaya say? Ultimately, devotion and surrender to God will take you beyond samsara. Bhakti will take you beyond samsara. Somebody who's trained in Indian philosophy may object here. Where do you get this from Nyaya philosophy? I'll say this Nyaya philosophy is at the core of the modern or, or the later dualistic, theistic systems in Hinduism. If you look at Dvaita Vedanta, um, Vishishta Dvaita, Shuddha Dvaita, the schools of dualistic devotional schools. And if you like 
open the um, machine up inside if you find what what are the philosophical parts which are working in that system they're all nyaya they've all adopted the nyaya system nyaya vaisheshika system on that they've built a devotional theology so that's why i am saying the ancient school of nyaya and vaisheshika their conclusion ultimately was god exists take refuge in god by devotion to god you will be saved theism built on nyaya there were great practitioners of nyaya the logicians they were not logicians in spiritual life they were devotees in spiritual life they were all bhaktas that siddhanta is a purva paksha for advaita vedanta is an opponent for advaita vedanta and it is cut down um the yoga philosophy of patanjali which says sit in meditation sit in this way um, breathe in this way focus your uh, mind in this way meditate deepen it into a complete cessation of the movements of the mind there you will see the atman beyond the body and mind purva paksha for advaita vedanta this is not the teaching of advaita vedanta it it is cut down sankhya even sankhya philosophy you might say sankhya sounds very much like advaita vedanta what does sankhya say by a discernment of our experience drik drishya viveka which i have often spoken about the seer and the seen you finally isolate you see yourself in your resplendent nature as pure consciousness you don't see actually everything that is seen is an object you are the seer of that object you are pure consciousness the entire universe appears to you and this insight of separating the witness consciousness from all that is illumined by consciousness like a light shining on the room with everything in this the, the table the chair the man the gadgets the bed everything is illumined by the same light but light is none of them it illumines everything similarly you are consciousness separate from the entire universe this separation atma anatma viveka purusha prakriti viveka this the separation of purusha and prakriti of matter and consciousness how do you separate in your understanding in your insight not physically so this sounds like vedanta isn't this what is being taught no this is not is what is being taught advaita does not teach this also then um the teachings of purva mimamsa which is based on entirely based on the vedas perform these ritualistic actions generate good karma and you will be assured a good life here and a good life here after in 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 future in heaven you will go through the cycle of birth and death but you will be assured of you know like a good good birth b e r t h this is a joke where only indians who have traveled in indian railway system can understand you always want a good birth in the uh, railway coach so uh, advaita says no 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 not at all completely rejects this this uh, philosophy so for advaita from an advaitic perspective nyaya vaisheshika and the dualistic theistic systems later built on the using it term the core processor of nyaya vaisheshika the core logic and logic algorithm of nyaya vaisheshika rejected the um, philosophy of sankhya which separates prakriti and purusha rejected the philosophy of yoga which uses samadhi to uh, attain the intuition of uh, the atman rejected the philosophy of purva mimamsa which which wants to generate good karma and lot of punya phala i mean that means merits to ensure a good life here and going to multiple heavens afterwards rejected what does advaita vedanta say 
Advaita Vedanta says, Sarvabhutasthamatmanam, Sarvabhutani Chatmani. All beings in the self, they are not separate from me. And I in all beings, it is the teaching of absolute oneness, one undivided rea reality. What did we chant in before every uh, Vedanta Sar class? Akandam Satchidanandam. One undivided existence, consciousness, bliss, that infinite you are. That is the teaching of Advaita Vedanta. And that's a unique teaching. None of the other systems, no other system teaches it, at least not mainstream. All right. Now, I will take back what I said. What I've said is pretty damaging. I will now say, no, bhakti is not rejected. Bhakti is extremely useful to attain the Advaitic realization. Um, doing good works is not rejected. Good works done unselfishly, extremely useful for purifying the mind and attaining enlightenment. The yogic meditation techniques, not at all rejected. It's extremely useful for focusing and Advaitic Nididhyasana completely borrows the yogic mindfulness techniques, the meditation techniques from Patanjali Yoga. The Sankhya, the Sankhya separation between seer and seeing, Drik Drishya Viveka, I have often repeated that it is the first step towards that oneness. It is separation. It is um, discernment between self and not self. But then only oneness can be established on that basis. So all of these are, are invited back into Advaita, but only the technique, only the central insight. The philosophy of Advaita Vedanta is exactly what Arjuna has perfectly understood. Samyena, the one, not only one oneness, it is to experience that oneness, one undivided divinity, and then come back to life and see all this variety in all its glory, in all its misery, in all its horror and its beauty, and see one radiance shining through all of that. And be very free in life, vyavahara, transactional life. Not trying to sit in samadhi all the time. Not trying to do uh, dance and sing the glories of God all the time. Not being continuously engaged in uh, uh, building schools, hospitals, and doing good to humanity. No, you're not focused or you're not locked into any of these. All of these are welcome. In every aspect of life, you will see that one divinity. And everything proceeds from that insight. So that is Samnyena. That is the, um, the same divinity everywhere. And Arjun, I wanted to just stress this. This is the central teaching. And of course, from an Advaitic perspective, my friends in the different dualistic schools will take strong objection to all these teachings. But anyway, now, whatever it is, Arjun has, has understood. He has not misunderstood Krishna, but he raises a practical question. He's a warrior. He's a practical man. What if it doesn't work, he dispenses with it. He says it will not work. It fails because the mind is restless. Which is interesting. The insight that there is one divinity everywhere, shouldn't that be enough? No. With a restless mind, you cannot gain that insight. And even if you begin to understand it, you cannot. it will not fructify, it will not give the benefits if the mind remains restless. So the restless mind is the problem now. Arjuna says it doesn't work. I taught you how to sit, breathe, uh, focus. Remember? Sit straight. This is the posture of your body. Uh, um, he even gave this, the seat, the, the grass and the, uh, the tiger skin and then on this and that. So many details here Krishna has given. Well, why don't you do that? Won't work, Arjuna says. Because the mind is restless and it does not stabilize. 
why what is your what problem is that and in the next verse arjuna gives a detailed description of the problem 34 chanchalam hi mana krishna pramathi balavadridam dasyaham nigraham manye vayuriva sudushkaram o krishna the mind is restless turbulent strong and obstinate i think it is extremely difficult to control like the wind so he says it is look at the terms he uses the mind is restless chanchalam restless it doesn't settle down even if it settles down it becomes restless again but let me give an example restlessness in itself is not such a big deal you know if uh, people in new york have dogs they love dogs so if your puppy you go to somebody's house and the puppy it is a cute puppy and it's restless and running around and the, the your host says oh i'm sorry the puppy is so restless but you would say that oh it's delightful it's fun to watch the puppy is restless the puppy has to be restless that's the nature of the puppy it's cute to watch then the host says no it's not just restless it's also turbulent uh, it um, it chews up, up slippers and socks and it knocks over furniture and uh, breaks uh, cups and plates it is turbulent pramathi chanchalam restless could be cute but pramathi is not cute anymore which is destructive in your in your life so the mind is not only restless it's destructive it keeps creating problems in in your life uh, generating um, uh, all sorts of comp- complications in your life and well if if it's uh, turbulent and it's destructive well you could restrain the dog you could restrain the dog so that it won't it won't create damage but suppose he says balavat suppose it's very strong you can't restrain it it's a it's a you know what pitbull or rottweiler or something very big and so strong you can't restrain it then you might have to call animal control or even the police similarly the mind not only is it restless but it's also damaging not only is it damaging it's very powerful it is powerful in its strength in the in the sense if you try to control it you will realize the power of the mind it's like controlling krishna uh, arjuna says like controlling a storm a wind and uh, if you say well be patient after some time it will calm down it will relax you go to sleep like the dog might go to sleep no dridam it's very consistent the mind will generate these problems again and again and again difficult to control and if you let it alone it will not settle down it will keep dragging you around like that it it will exhaust you it has lifetimes of practice in being nasty it can outlast you <laughs> so it is dridam it is very consistent and very firm very set in certain patterns of thought very difficult to pull out i know people who have problems mental illnesses and they tell me it's all right to say that i am the witness of the mind but when the storm comes in the mind very difficult it's very difficult to remain peaceful though it can work but it requires a very powerful teacher who can implant that idea deeply enough to see the mind, storm of the mind as separate from you but uh, otherwise it's very difficult so this is what arjuna says why is it so difficult to con- control the mind chanchalam restless and more worse than that 
pramati, turbulent, destructive, problem creating. Worse than that, so strong, more strong than myself. Can't control it. And also long lasting and, and uh, consistent. Same problems throughout lifetime, it will continue. It has continued for many lifetimes. So one lifetime is nothing to the mind. Then Krishna gives his answer. It's a simple answer, but I would like to dwell on it for the rest of the class today. Why? Because this is the one question that uh, you find, I've seen in spiritual retreats. In India, the spiritual retreats organized in our ashram, devotees, uh, but devotees, monks, uh, they all have one common question will be there in the question-answer session. My mind doesn't settle down in meditation. My mind is restless. Common question everywhere. All across the world, whether it's householders, monks, everywhere it's common question. And we have so many sophisticated techniques, so many answers to this. But look at, let's listen to what Sri Krishna, what God himself has to say. And so they gave great importance to this. One great Swami of our order, Swami Bhaskareshwarandaji. I got his notes of Gita. The way he would teach Gita was extra, extraordinary. Uh, he was the founder of our ashram in Nagpur, uh, disciple of Mahapurush Maharaj. So I never saw him long before my time. But the Swamis, the senior Swamis nowadays, who used were Brahmacharis during his time, they took down notes in his Gita classes. What even the the way he would introduce introduce the Gita, the way he would start them off. Very different from all the other teachers have seen. Extraordinary. For example, there's one thing he would say. Remember always who is the teacher. The teacher is not a professor, is not a pundit, is not even a sadhu, is not even an enlightened person. The teacher is an avatar, is none other than God himself. Keep that in mind. If above all else, give importance to his words. Krishna's words. So that's how he would impress the importance of the, the attitude to which you, you should bring to the study of Bhagavad Gita. What else did he say? Another thing that I remember, he said, always keep your prayojanam vibrating in uh, Vedanta class, in Gita class, Upanishad class. What is prayojanam? Why am I here? Why? Most important. That will keep the flame of spirituality burning. Why am I here? What am I doing here? Why am I doing it? I have come here for the ultimate goal of human life. To overcome suffering. To attain the greatest thing that a human being can aim for. I have come here to make my life, to fulfill my life. All human life is meant for this which I am doing. Nothing compares in importance to that which I am doing now. The most valuable thing I will get here. Nothing in life in lifetimes will compare to what I am hearing now. So keep that, he says, keep that vibrating when you are studying the Gita. What wonderful things to say you know, to new students who are coming in to study Bhagavad Gita. So in those days, we didn't have access to digital technology or anything. So I had to copy down these notes by hand from another person's old, torn notebook. Again, quick. What do they call in law? Sidebar or side note before I enter the text. This question of why, prayojanam. I, I heard it described so well by an executive from none other than Apple <laughs> company. He says, what distinguishes us from the rest of the competition is that 
we start with why. It do three circles. It's a famous idea now. Three circles. Innermost circle is why. The outer circle is uh, how, and the outermost circle is what. Uh, if you ask, what does uh, this company do? Some company. Suppose a computer company. I won't name the competition. It's not good to compare. He did name competition. So if you ask that such and such company, what do they do? Computers. They make them. What do they do? They make computers. But in our case, we don't say what do we do. We don't start there. We ask, why are we doing these, these things? What is our core purpose? What are we trying to do here? So why are we doing it? We are doing it because he says we like uh, elegance, simplicity, style. Um, we like uh, excellence. Uh, and then how will you do it? We will do it in terms of certain products, whatever we do, whatever product and service we provide from our computer, our phone to our showrooms, everything will reflect this goal. And how do you, then what do you do? Yes, we make uh, iPhones, iMac and all these things. So you see where he's coming from. The core idea is why, then how, and then what? What is, we, people generally in their personal lives, in their uh, companies, in their careers, they're too much taken up by what is going on. But much more important is why, how, and then what? Most important is why, that why is prayojana. Prayojanam, the goal, the purpose, that should be, that should set me on fire. All right. Now let me go back to the verse. Krishna's answer to Arjuna, that yoga does not work. How to settle down the mind? How to calm down the mind? Without that, no enlightenment. Without that, no seeing the same divinity everywhere. Sri Bhagavan Uvacha Asamshayam Mahabaho Mano durnigraham chalam abhyasena tukaunteya vairagena chagrihyate. The Blessed Lord said, Undoubtedly, O mighty armed one, the mind is restless and hard to control, yet by practice and dispassion, O son of Kunti, it is controlled. So, first, Krishna acknowledges. He doesn't dispute it, it's a big problem. And that makes us heave a sigh of relief. At least here is someone who acknowledges the problem, does not dismiss it just like that. Oh, it's nothing. Just do some meditation. It will be all right. No, it is a serious problem. It is a serious problem, long-lasting problem, and it will continue to bug us for quite a while. But, he says, the word two here is but. It means to contradict. What you have said is not correct. Why? First of all, notice how he addresses Arjuna. Mahabaho, O mighty armed one. What is he indicating? You are a warrior. You have fought and defeated so many great enemies. And here you are accepting defeat without a fight. Where? From your own mind. That's what is indicated. I had this experience about 15 years ago. In Gangotri, I was studying Ashtavakra Gita from a very great, wonderful teacher I had the luck to meet. So we used to go and sit near him um, at 3.30 in the afternoon. He used to live near that's, uh, Surya Kunda, where the river, where the, you know, the water from the glacier, Gangotri, melts and pour, what becomes the Ganga River, it starts there. So it's, it's a spectacular scenery. And we used to sit in that little ashram uh, on the bank of this roaring torrent of water and by at his feet. So this old teacher, he was a master of non-dual Vedanta, very old, by that time more than 80. 
So Ashtavakra Gita, the highest non-dual Vedanta. One day he closed the book and looked at us. Us means monks. And it was a motley collection. I was in this dress and uh, there were people, some had dressed in black, some in white, some had beards, some were shaven, some lived in cottages, some lived in caves, one lived in a hole in the ground and so on. Uh, so we had all gathered around him. He said this, I'll tell you in Hindi and then translate. Uh, he was Punjabi. He said, um, Mahatma ji, haat mein astra shastra hai aur dushman se do thappad kha ke rote rote aage to kya maja hai Mahatma ji? He says, oh monks, you are armed with all these weapons. He showed the book. These are weapons. You're armed with these weapons. And the enemy gives you, your opponent gives you a couple of slaps and you come back weeping. What's the fun in that, oh, monk, oh monks? What is the fun in that? What are the weapons? These, this knowledge that you are getting, these are the weapons to deal with. What is the opponent? The mind. The mind is the opponent. The mind gives you two slaps, finished. We come back. So, Mahabaho, you are a great warrior. Now you have to fight the greatest of all enemies. You conquer yourself, you conquer everything. One who conquers oneself conquers everything. One must have this attitude of a hero. There's a Sanskrit verse, I don't remember the verse, but it says, divides people into three kinds of, three categories when faced with uh, overcoming obstacles. He says, Nija, Madhyama, Uttama. The lowest category, the middling category, and the best. The lowest category is those who do not be, uh, begin any task uh, because they, are, they see the obstacles on the way and they think it's too much trouble. It's too much trouble, so I won't undertake this task. And here it's not just about spirituality. It's about anything in life. Will not undertake great challenges because it's too much trouble. Let alone spirituality, even prosperity and even happiness in this life is not possible for such people. Second, the middling class. Large numbers of people are like this. So they take it up, but they, uh, the moment the inevitable problems crop up, the inevitable challenges crop up, the inevitable defeats and losses crop up, they give it up. And the best ones are those who take it up and carry it through in spite of whatever happens. Carry it through. If it's a task doing, what doing? It's worth doing well. So they carry it through to the end. Is what doing well, I remember very great Swami of our order. You can take the name Swami Suhitananda, who's the vice president of our order. I was very lucky to join as a novice under his training uh, about 27 years ago. Um, he told us this once about his own days as a novice, as a brahmachari. In those days in Belurmat, there were some very great enlightened uh, monks. Uh, there was this um, Swami Shantananda, who was a disciple of the Holy Mother. So he was constantly in God consciousness. And it was wonderful to visit him. Those who understood, they understood much better. Even if those who had no idea, they would be strangely pulled to him. He hardly spoke. He was childlike. He just sat, sat quietly. People loved sitting around him. So he says, Swami Suhitanta told me that he was a brahmachari, a novice, under training in Belurmat, which is a very strict kind of uh, routine is there, schedule. So his duty was, uh, and so at, there was a particular time, a window in the routine when he could go to Swami Shantananda and sit there and do a little bit of service for him. And he really looked forward to that time. And as it would happen, he was given a duty at that time itself 
um, to weed, to pull weeds out in the garden. And that really annoyed him. Here I am pulling out weeds in a little garden. I could be sitting, I'm just this 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I could be sitting near an enlightened person. And I'll, I don't know if I'll get this opportunity in the rest of my life. And he was thinking, he said, mentally he was grumbling, he was quickly doing the work so that you'd get at least some time to run off and sit near that Swami. Then the principal, the, the master, one who's in charge of all the novice masters, the monk who is the head of the training center, he looked at him and he said to Swami Suitanji, who was not a Swami at that time, he was a brahmachari. He said to him, if it is worth doing, it is worth doing well. And he said, that set me right. That even something as simple, annoying as reading and you have to ask yourself, is it worth doing at all? And if it is, then it's worth doing well. So Mahabaho, he says, you are a great warrior. You must persist. If you take up something, don't give it up. I remember another great Swami. Uh, I was witness to this. It was a monk. Um, so it was in Haridwar on the foot, foothills of the Himalayas. And we were, uh, the Swami was teaching something. Uh, he was a very well-known, a very great monk in those days. I consider him one of the few Jivan Muktas I would have seen in my whole life. One of the monks in that gathering, I heard later, was a little restless. He, the study was going on of a Vedantic text. And he said, um, I feel, I think I should go to Gangotri, to, to the highest Himalayan peaks uh, on a pilgrimage and then come back. And the master who was teaching, he said, uh, finish the study first. We have started this text. It'll take a few more months, finish it. And then you can go, maybe next year you can go. Uh, no, uh, I think I'll go. All right, he said, go, uh, go for the pilgrimage to Gangotri and other places. And so this monk set up. A few days later, he was back again. What happened? Oh, there was a landslide and all the no buses could go. It's a common event. Uh, I was also caught once. So it, it happens in the high Himalayas, landslides. Um, so I decided, oh, well, it's no use going to Gangotri. And this is very difficult now. There's, there's no vehicles going. So I thought oh, maybe I'll come back and finish the text. So I came back. Now the master was teaching was sorely annoyed. He scolded him. So this is, this is a very bad trait in spiritual life. If you take up something that is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And he said, you're going for the pilgrimage. There's a landslide. So what? I will get down from the bus. I will walk over the piles of rubble and rocks and all and cross over to the other side and walk on, my, uh, walk on foot to Gangotri and Yamunotri. If I perish in the cold, so be it. That mindset you have to have. Otherwise, taking up something and letting it go, this is very, it's a damaging trait in spiritual life. Um, he says, Asamshayam Mahabaho Manodurnigraham Chalam Abhyasena Tukanteya. I practice. So this. How to become in, to you know overcome sorrow? How to concentrate the mind? This has to be learned. It will not come by itself. You might say it's obvious. No, it's not obvious. We behave as if it should come by itself. I have become interested in spiritual life. 
I have taken mantra diksha or I have gone to a meditation class. Now, why isn't my mind calming down? You have just begun. You never say that in any um, sphere of human life. I've enrolled in uh, university, Columbia University here. Why haven't I got my degree yet? No, that's not that. It doesn't happen that fast. I started a business. Why aren't I a millionaire yet? People would think you're ridiculous if you say such things. But we think like that in spiritual life. It does not come. None of these things come naturally. The mind will not become concentrated naturally. Concentration is not natural. Nothing in spiritual life or anything in anything good in civilized life itself is natural. Why I'm stressing this is, there is this whole superstition, worshipping everything that is supposed to be natural. I think it started with Rousseau and the French, uh, the, the Romantic movement, uh, something. There's a truth in that, but there's also a great fallacy in that. All that is worthwhile has to be taught. Shankaracharya says that Naisargikovayam Loka Vyavahara in the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, an introduction to Brahma Sutra Bhashya, all this that you see in human life, this samsara, is natural. It comes with birth. You didn't have to go to school to become ignorant about your real self and then become attached to the world and then become quarrelsome, jealous, angry, desirous, unhappy. To be unhappy does not require training. To be happy requires training. To become spiritual requires training. Everything requires training. We did not know how to stand. Our parents taught us how to stand, helped us to stand. Uh, we did not know how to eat. Our parents taught us how to eat. We did not know the first letters of the alphabet. Our teachers taught us the first letters. None of that is natural. None of that comes by itself. Let alone the higher arts, sciences, and certainly let alone the highest spirituality. It requires training, including controlling the training, the mind. So abhyasa, training is required. Let me say here that um, one story about natural, I remember, I like it very much. It, is, it concerns the French Revolution. So when the French Revolution was there, the revolutionaries were very much against religion, which meant uh, Catholic Christianity at that time in France. So the story concerns uh, a pastor and his friend. The friend was a revolutionary. The pastor was, of course, a priest uh, in the church. Now, the revolutionary came once to the pastor's home and he found that the priest was teaching the Bible to his little son. And the revolutionary said afterwards, he said, my friend, don't do this. Don't you know the new thought in our land? Let things grow naturally. Don't force these superstitious ideas into a child's mind. Let him grow up by himself naturally. And then if he likes, he can pick up uh, Bible or whatever it is and then learn. The pastor didn't say anything. Um, now, what happened was, this pastor, he had a beautiful garden, I think a rose garden or something. So one day, the revolutionary friend came to the pastor's house, and instead of the garden, he saw it all overgrown with weeds. And he rushed inside and said, my friend, what happened to your beautiful garden? So cultivated, so beautiful. And the pastor said, oh, I let it grow naturally. So, <laughs> and that taught a lesson to the revolutionary. Uh, that if you grow naturally, that will be the result. Do not flow with nature. That is, the, that is the slogan these days that you have to be natural, go with the flow. And No, 
if you flow with nature it will take you down to to gross materiality that is the direction of flow in nature so i mean vivekananda said it is all spirituality is an upward struggle against what we have been used to nature is prakriti uh, it is by nature tamasic nature is by nature tamasic it drags you down to materiality in hindi they say chetan ko jad bana deta hai consciousness is reduced to matter it does not actually reduce to matter but it becomes uh, matter like the sentience which is our most valuable thing that we are aware that is lost slowly the more you uh, more you flow down with nature i have seen a friend who i thought was very spiritual in our college days but he would meditate he is the one who introduced me to the books of eknath ishwaran you know very beautiful books on uh, gita upanishads very beautifully written but anyway this friend um he was spiritual but uh, i noticed that about meditation say i would i meditate only when the mood seizes me when i feel meditative and i meditate and i get good meditation i felt there was something wrong with that kind of thinking it is true that if you do that very soon that mood will not come again <laughs> the mood will come once in a while and then they, you will get nowhere the mind will not be developed so don't flow with nature because you'll flow down you have to go against nature and for that abhyasa practice is necessary what is practice repetition in one word practice is repetition there's a great power in repetition there are these two basis of spirituality in ancient indian thought jnana yoga jnana means knowledge yoga means practice jnana is intuition insight realization yoga is repetition there is a very ancient saying even patanjali yoga sutras the commentaries on that they quote it so that means it must be older than that older than the commentaries on patanjali yoga sutra sankhya samam jnanam nasti yoga samam balam nasti sankhya means the knowledge of self and not self i am consciousness existence consciousness place world is not me not self that sankhya insight that who am i the answer to that question there is no knowledge like that it says there is no knowledge like the knowledge of who am i what am i and he says there is no strength like yoga there is no power like yoga yoga here is practice the repetition the central idea so if you want power and strength it is yoga and your knowledge it is sankhya sankhya means self not self knowledge who am i both are necessary both are necessary in spiritual life both have to be combined in spiritual life that's why swami vivekananda says religion is the manifestation of the divinity already within us not just the knowledge of the divinity not just the philosophy of the divinity within us so manifestation that means you have to realize who am i but it also must be reflected in your life in my thoughts in my feelings in my speech and in my actions how i interact with the world my spiritual realization should show should shine forth that shining forth that requires strength enormous practice has been done in many lifetimes in the opposite direction by going with the flow that's also kind of repetition and that generates enormous uh, inertia now you're going to move against that 
You need enlightenment, but you need to manifest that enlightenment also. That manifestation, you will come up against the, the preconditioning of the body-mind, especially the mind, which has been conditioned to worldliness in many lifetimes. That pushback, it requires strength. So manifestation of the divinity already within us. Abhyasa. Let me go a little deeper here. I mentioned this earlier, but it's very relevant here. The insights of which are given by Jonathan Haidt, who is uh, in, um, in the Stern School of Management here in New York, in the Stern School. Uh, he is regarded as right now among the living psychologists in the world. He is regarded as like some, I think, in the top 25 in the world today. Um, his masterpiece, which I read, was long ago. Uh, it was uh, happiness hypothesis. Happiness hypothesis. Um, there, he says, he takes up this question. Why do our efforts to change ourselves fail? So this is enormous range of self-help books available. You go to Barnes and Nobles, um, rack after rack, entire rows of books filled with all sorts of self-help books. And nice. You know, it, it will promise you um, you can make friends, you can lose weight, you can be an effective communicator, um, you can uh, control your mind and be at peace and med learn to meditate, you can become creative, what not? You can find romantic love, what not? All those things are promised there. And it's not false. Many of them contain wonderful insights, so mostly anecdotal, but many of those things are now being confirmed by uh, modern positive psychology, which is an academic discipline. But what Jonathan Haidt asked was, why doesn't it work? These books are all there in a popular form and they're very popular. So many people are buying them. So are their lives being transformed? Are they getting some benefit of it at least? Not much, not much. Why not? So he asked this question, what is happening? And then he said, um, our mind has the structure, he used a very Indian metaphor, has the structure of, an, uh, of a mahout and an elephant. The elephant, and the mahout is the one who rides the elephant, the controls the elephant. I think it's an English word also, right? Mahout? I don't know. Yes, the one, the elephant who controls the elephant, sits on the elephant, mahout. It comes from the in, uh, Indian languages. So the mahout controls the elephant. Now, notice what, how it works. The mahout knows where he wants to go. I want to go this way and that way. And he can command the elephant to go this way and that way. Now, if the elephant obeys the mahout, it will work. But if the elephant does not obey the mahout, the elephant wants to go that way and the mouth wants to go this way. The elephant finds some bananas there which it wants to eat and it wants to go that way. The mouth cannot do anything to the elephant. The elephant is far, far stronger than the mahout. Nothing the mouth can do to the elephant. Exactly in the same way, our mind, he says, there is an intellect. So this is so Vedantic, the psychology which Jonathan Haidt speaks about. There's an intellect which understands, uh, which processes information, which gets new ideas, which gets excited, a wow factor. It's wonderful. I've taken this seminar. I've attended this class. I have bought these books, a cartload of books from Barnes and Nobles. All of this is wonderful. I'm sold. I'm going to do these things. All right. What am I going to do? Um, say, 
I want to wake up. I'm sold on the idea you have to get up early in the morning. That's a wonderful idea to change your life. Uh, so I'm going to get up early in the morning and meditate and do yoga and so on. Good. Convinced. Next morning, you get up. It's cold, below zero. And today we had gone out in the Central Park and late November, it started snowing. There a few, few snowflakes. Uh, it stopped luckily. So it's cold outside. It's freezing. And it's cold in the room. And I've decided to get up and want to get up. But here is the problem. It's not the intellect which has to get up. It's the body which has to get up. And the body says, you never asked me. I didn't sign up for this. I'm the one who's going to suffer in the cold. I'm the one who's comfortable under the blanket. So I'm going to stay right here. If you want, oh, intellect, if you want to get up and do yoga, you're welcome to go and do, and do, do yoga in your own mind. I am not going to get up. We face a resistance from the body. Not just the body. We face resistance from our emotions. We face resistance from our likes and dislikes. So this happens. Now, the elephant, this, this lower mind, the body, this is the elephant. And the intellect is the one which understands Vedanta, which understands positive psychology, which wants to do all sorts of things. But the lower mind and the body uh, have not signed up for this. They don't understand. The body does not understand uh, positive psychology. The elephant does not understand uh, Google Maps or anything like that. Uh, so now what do you do? The question is, then what's the option? If you can't convince the elephant, argue logically, give a seminar to the elephant, no. Then what do you do with the elephant? Think about it. What do mouths do actually? They train the elephant. Not convic convincing it. They don't argue with the elephant. They don't give lectures to the elephant. And they don't um, send it to seminars and uh, you know, self-development workshops. No. They train the elephant. And what is the nature of training the elephant? It is repetition. Again and again until certain patterns of behavior are inculcated in the elephant. Exactly like that. Jonathan Haidt says, our body mind, the lower mind and the body have to be trained. And training means repetition. Generating and sustaining new habits. There's also many uh, of these ideas that there are 21 days. One new habit, you must do it consistently for 21 days. You break it even once, repeat it again for 21 days. It seems it takes some kind of some amount of time. It may not be 21 days, could be 30 days, I don't know. But repetition is important. And neuroscientists entirely agree here. This new neural pathways are generated. The brain is. Uh, is plastic. All these things are now known, which are not known earlier. Actually, the brain rewires itself. But that rewiring is a physical process. And like any physical process, any biological process, it takes time. It takes a lot of um, grunt work, uh, hard work there. Repetition. Repetitive. Uh, repetition is the key to abhyasa. This is the key to yoga. Jnana yoga. Insight is the key. But karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, repetition is the key. You want to like selfless work? It won't happen um, just by reading about altruism and selflessness. You keep doing it, you'll develop a taste for it. You want to feel the love of God? Just by reading books, you may get some. But if you start a little puja, a little devotional, you know, listen to songs, make it a practice every day, 
very soon you will feel an attachment to God. Similarly, Krishna says, now meditation is your problem, Arjuna. So the uh, answer to your question is repetition. Systematic repetition, fixed time, fixed place, repeat, repeat and repeat. Do it, do it again and do it once again. That is the answer. So Abhyasa is very powerful. Repetition is very powerful. I've seen this again and again. Um, I've mentioned this to you. Uh, I've seen a monk. I didn't see the, the, uh, the ICU in a hospital. The, they told me that this old monk who passed, he was dying. And in the dark, in the, in, uh, not, not dark, actually always lit up. The ICU is always lit up. But you can't make out whether it's day or night outside. And this monk who was not very conscious of anything outside, at 4 a.m., just before 4 a.m., he would struggle and sit up like that with the, on the pillows and his hands would start moving with the japa. Now, what is that? That is lifelong practice. Repetition. And that must be forced at first. That's why you have strict rules. Uh, why are uh, the brahmacharis, the novices, put under such a strict regime? It, it inculcates those habits. I remember uh, one brahmachari novice was grumbling about having to get up so early in the morning at 3.40. He was telling this senior Swami, the same Swami I mentioned, Swami Suhitanandati. This happened in front of me. He was saying that he thought he gave a pretty good argument. He said, you know, it's difficult. It's, uh, I don't get good sleep at night. And if I get up at 3.40, the thing is, I feel uh, sleepy throughout the day and I can't do my work properly. Now, the senior Swami see through our psychology. <laughs> the answer from the Swamiji was that I don't want any work from you. The only thing I want from you is to for the, you get up at 3.40 and go for meditation at 4 a.m. You see, he says, whatever work you can do after that, I'm happy with that. So, I'm, I don't, uh, this is the trick. The mind plays. So, I have to do work. That's why I must sleep late. What the mind really wants to do is to sleep late. It's not that the mind is very concerned about the work itself. So the Swami said, he immediately, he sees through. Uh, what is the, what if even we don't know what is in our own mind? He sees through and he says, uh, I you get up at 3:40 after that, whatever work you can do, that's fine with me. Only thing that I want of you is that you get up at 3:40 in the morning, and go and meditate at 4 a.m. So uh, repetition. I'll illustrate the difference between the jnana and the and the yoga in this way. In jnana, when you say tattvamasi, aham brahmasmi. What is that meant for? It is not meant for repetition. It is meant for realization, enlightenment. You must realize I am Brahman. And for that, Vedantic enquiry is there. But when you do Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, what do you do with that? You repeat it. Mantra, Mananatrayati. Mantra is that if you repeat it, it saves you. Trayati means saves you from samsara. Repetition of the mantra. But Aham Brahmasmi, Mahavakya, it's not a mantra. It's not meant for repetition. I've told you this story earlier also, but let me repeat here. See repetition. <laughs> uh, Swami Atma Priyanandaji told this to, uh, to us, anecdote to us. He's a very senior monk of our order. He was the vice chancellor of our university until recently. So he said when he became a monk, a sannyasi, and took the vows after 10 years of being a novice, um, so they go in a group after getting the vows, the next day in the morning, they go in a group to the president of the order who has given them the vows of 
um, of sannyasa, of monkhood. It goes and so they can ask questions about the new knowledge they received. So Swami Atmapriyamji, he said, I was the spokesman for the entire group. I went and asked Swami Gambhiranandaji, who was the 11th president of our order. And he was of a very grave nature. The very name means grave. Gambhira means grave. <laughs> whose, whose joy is in being grave. So you can say whose joy is in being gruff. <laughs> so he was sitting there quietly. He used to sit with his eyes closed, it seems. Uh, and uh, Swami Atmapriyananda, he said, any questions? Swami Atmapriyananda asked, the brothers want to know um, this Mahavakya we received last night. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Uh, this, um, how many times should be repeated? Because earlier we have received the initiation mantra, Diksha mantra, we've been told how many times, thousands of times you have to repeat it and so on. So how many times should we repeat it daily? Swami Gambhiranji said, it is not for repetition, it is for realization. Any other questions? No, you may go. <laughs> that is the difference between jnana and yoga. Yoga depends entirely on repetition, on doing. Repeat, stay with it, Krishna says to Arjuna. But that's not enough. He says, cha, and one more thing is necessary. Vairagya, dispassion for everything that is worldly. Dispassion for everything that is not self. You want to inquire about the self, realize I am, I am Brahman. That which appears to you as not self, you will realize ultimately there's nothing other than the self. But before that, everything that seems not self, there must be dispassion. Not God and world. Then you won't get it. You must let go of the world, not physically. If you are in samsara, if you have got a family, that still is there. If you have got an ashram, that still is there. But that is no longer your goal, no, no longer your, your central concern. So, vairagya, dispassion. And the Sri Ramakrishna story about the three drunkards who stumbled around at night and sat on a boat to row to their home across the river. And they rowed and rowed and rowed all night long. In the morning, they found they were exactly the same spot. What happened? They had forgotten to untie the boat. So there was this throwing like that in the darkness. So that untying is the vairagya, the dispassion. Vairagya in a chakrihyate. We have, don't have time. I wanted to say more about this vairagya. But um, in fact, this Sunday, the subject that I have kept for the talk, meditate better, was actually inspired by Sri Krishna's, uh, this, this verse. So I will explain more in uh, length in this Sunday talk, uh, meditate better. Freedom from the mind. Control of the mind, freedom from the mind. One sign of freedom from the mind, you might, surprise, you might be surprised, is the ability to accommodate others, is the ability to get along with others. You know why we don't get along with others? The sankalpas in the mind, the thoughts, uh, the desires, the determinations. I want this. This is right. My opinion, my desire, my way. You know, my way or highway. That one, it's a product of the mind and it captures us and that leads us into conflict with others. The one who is free of that, that means the mind is generating its likes and dislikes, whatever it wants to say, but you're completely not, you're completely free of it. 
you are a witness to the whole thing or the mind is pure enough not to generate those thoughts then such a mind will be happy and easy to get along with with everybody else you will be happy with your own mind and you will be happy with everybody else let their opinion be done what is it to you um, today do this instead of that it's a matter of opinion in most cases most quarrels um, between employees between uh, uh, married people between parents and children even guru and disciple it is matters of opinion minor matters let go the ability to accommodate a thousand minds that only an enlightened person can do because that person is free of his own mind has got control over his own mind control means the mind is fully docile in in uh, to that enlightened one enlightened one means the self the atman others we are captured we are held hostage by our mind and the mind makes us do these things and it leads to conflict with everybody else around us this is of course the state of a jivan mukta jivan mukta one who can accommodate all others is free of the sankalpas of his own mind therefore can accommodate the sankalpas of others can give good advice to others also this is of course a very high state jivan mukta but we see how it is possible notice in our own life in samsara life also you will see those who are more mature are much more accommodating than others parents are more accommodating than children grandparents are more accommodating than parents Uh, older more mature wiser you are generally you will be more accommodating uh, with others and that shows a, a maturity that maturity increase it a um, thousand times million times more and it is spiritual freedom freedom from the the vicissitudes of one's own mind i remember i'll leave you with this story or oh, really have gone overboard um one monk i met in in our ashram in india this monk was the head of a of a school in india what we call a college like a college here and that college was always afflicted with uh, um, union troubles uh, with the staff and the teachers and the monk said you know today uh, i had to give special leave to some teachers who are fighting a case against me in the court because they have a court hearing today against me so i had to take up the slack because they're going to the court to fight a case against me and i have to approve approve of the leave and said what did you do i said i did it i was happy and i had a shared a cup of tea with them and they went to fight a case against me I said mara that's really difficult and he said you know i have understood the the he says my idea of strength is the ability to pull along with contradictions with multiple contradictions in life you can still pull along still get your job done still live your life with the in the middle of this muddle that is a sign of strength and that requires control over your mind you can't get angry and revengeful and furious because these people are going to uh, stab me in the back now all right go ahead stab me in the back you are doing what you are supposed to do i'll do what i'm supposed to do and i have not the least ill will towards anybody okay let me stop here um i will just look at quickly look at the questions but i will not answer them now you really gone over time
Arjun, uh, Pradeep Bose says Arjun had ex excellent control of his mind. He could focus attention one small object, yet he's so worried about restless mind. Why so? Yes, he could focus tremendous power of uh, concentration, focus. But here he is, uh, he is worried because I didn't come to that at Vairagya. He does not have that dispassion towards his own relatives. The moment it comes to the fact that I have to fight against my own cousins and my own revered teachers, even though they are on the evil side, uh, I can't do that. And his mind becomes shaken. Punitaji says he was Pitambaranji's guru. Yes, Swami Bhaskarishwaranji was. Pitambaranji is maybe not his mantra guru, but he regards him as guru because he learned everything from uh, Bhaskarishwaranji. So whenever he says my guruji, he means, means Bhaskarishwaranji. Why, how, what graphic? Please look at this. Ramya says, until mind control is achieved, can we take the struggle or friction in sadhana itself as an indication that we are doing it right? Certainly, certainly. There's an anecdote about this, but I won't tell now because there is no time. And then, sadhana chatushtaya, fourfold qualifications. Viveka comes before Vairagya. Sri Krishna does not mention Viveka here. Is it already assumed? Yes. And why is Abhyasa not mentioned in Sadhana Chatushtaya? Uh, I will not answer that now. It is there. You remember sa Samadhana, settledness of mind. Can we train an old body? It gets harder with age. Correct. Isn't that why spirituality is best started early in life? Correct. But remember, one great power beyond all this training now I'm, I'm going a little bit from Advaita Vedanta. One great power on your side is Ishwara. God is there. What others will take a lot of effort to achieve, you will achieve with a little bit of effort because God is there. Recalling Swami Tathagatanji's golden words, he would shoot off someone, would prostrate to him. All this is okay, but the most important thing is that you behave well with all others. So important. I, I wanted to talk about that today also, but we'll see. We'll see in the Sunday talk. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu